LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Ian Hughes, who joins us to discuss his book, Disordered Minds, How Dangerous Personalities Are Destroying Democracy. Of all the personality disorders recognized by psychiatrists, only three pose a very real danger to society. The influence of psychopaths and those with narcissistic and paranoid personality disorders is seen every day in bullying in schools and workplaces, in violence against women and children in their homes, in random assault and murder, in international criminal networks, in corporate fraud and corruption, and in decisions made every day by leaders around the world who put their own power ahead of the common good. Their malign influence is also evident in times of war, revolution and societal breakdown, when they are given free reign to express their destructive natures. How has this disturbing fact remained hidden for so long? The answer is that many factors combine to provide camouflage, a mask of sanity, for pathological individuals. Science has only recently begun to properly characterize and diagnose these disorders, and it is also deeply ingrained within us to assume that everyone around us who seems normal is just like us, cognitively, emotionally and otherwise. Few in the media or general public are willing or able to ask whether some of those wielding enormous power are dangerously psychologically unstable. But the mental health of those in control is a vital issue, an elephant in the room that we must face sooner rather than later. Cascading political, economic and environmental crises are currently converging to create a perfect storm in which individual mental disorders can become mass psychosis with catastrophic consequences for us all. Hello and welcome Ian and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks Greg, it's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Ian, today we're going to be discussing your recent book. It's entitled Disordered Minds, How Dangerous Personalities Are Destroying Democracy. Before we jump into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Okay, so my background, I started off as a physicist. So I have a PhD in atomic physics from Queen's University in Belfast. And I worked as a, a physicist for a number of years. In the meantime, I've retrained. I did retraining in, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Um, and then with the book, then I, it's kind of pulling those different things together. And the book came out in September last, and that was about six years that I was writing that. Now, in general terms, as the title of your book indicates, we're going to be discussing mental health issues, personality disorders, and how they pertain to public life, in particular politics, but not limited to that realm. And at the start of your book, you mentioned that you're, you've got three uh, psychiatric disorders in mind, that uh, narcissistic personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, both of those should be fairly obvious what those are, and also 
psychopathy. Now, what we've dis- what we discover quite early on in the book is there are certain types of individuals who are more likely to seek power and influence than others. And there's an interesting Venn diagram sort of overlap between those people and people suffering from some of the disorders, one or more that we've just discussed. And all of this would be sort of an academic discussion uh, in, in, you know, in a side room for interested professionals, were it not for the fact that people affected by these disorders, this plays out in their professional lives, and it affects all of us potentially. And in extreme cases, it can pose a grave danger to society itself. So just throw a little bit more uh, light on the general premise here before we move forward. Okay. I guess the first thing to say, Greg, is in terms, you mentioned there are three personality disorders that I deal with in the book. Um, It's important to state that those three are three out of 12 that psychiatrists recognized as personality disorders and all of the rest of the personality disorders are not dangerous to other people so just when we're talking about mental health in general it's important to to stress that the personality disorders that we're talking about are a minority within mental health disorders and that the vast majority of people who have mental health disorders are not dangerous to other people the exception are these three as you say narcissistic personality disorder paranoid personality disorder and psychopaths and so the premise of the book is I I guess it begins the first part of the book begins just by stating that such people exist Um, and although that may sound obvious it actually isn't it still isn't so widely accepted that this minority exists they they account for about 5% of the population in every country um, and the argument is that they have an enormous impact. As you say, the book that I've written is about their impact in politics, but there has been a lot written about their impact in terms of personal relationships, in terms of work environment. Um, so they have, although it is, as I say, about 5% of the population, the premise is that they have an enormous impact on society. And in fact, I'd go further in terms of the, what I've done in the book, I was looking at case studies, which we can get into in terms of Stalin and Mao and Hitler and Pol Pot. But I would say going back in history, it's almost like the history of our species since we became started living in civilized societies and mass societies is one in which this minority has been lording it over you like the rest of the no- normal, healthy human population. And it's been a struggle since we, we started living in living together in large groups to try and contain this minority's malign influence. So, as I say, that's going back into history. So, I, I, in the book, I concentrate much more on recent times in terms of the 20th century. Um, but a lot of what was happening in the 20th century then is also beginning to happen again today. Now, at this early stage, I just want to say something about naming individuals you know if you've mentioned some historical figures there their legacy uh, tragically is well known well understood though we can perhaps understand them better through the lens that you're describing people listening to this may already be beginning to have names into their heads of politicians that they dislike uh, or like or whatever and start thinking about if they fall into any of these categories people are very quick to judge but just to make it clear, if I or you for that matter, if we mention names, in my case, I'll be expressing perhaps an opinion. You know, we might look back at the 20th century and say, was Richard Nixon paranoid? Did he have a major problem with that? Was Bill Clinton narcissistic? Those are just things I'm saying, my opinion, of looking at one human being to another. 
But there's this thing, that I have no professional qualification in this area, you do, but there's this thing called the Goldwater Rule, which perhaps you can tell listeners about, that's very important when professionals are commenting on public figures. That's right. Well, the Goldwater Rule is a, a rule for the members of the American Psychological Association, so I'm not a member, so it doesn't apply to me. But it really prohibits individual psychologists, psychiatrists from speaking out about a public figure if they hadn't, haven't personally um, examined them and if they haven't obtained the consent of the person. Um, so I guess there are reasons for that rule in terms of, as you've just stated, you know, to prevent individual psychologists taking it upon themselves to, to label someone they don't like. Um, um, but in the current circumstances, I think the Goldwater rule prevents the people who have the the greatest professional knowledge about a lot of what's going on at the moment with regard to populism from speaking out. And in fact, it hasn't because there's a a group that's led by Bandy Lee in the US. Um, There's a a book that they they published in March this year called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And there were 27 uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who have written chapters in that book. I also was one of the contributing authors to that where they are warning about Trump and warning about but rather than diagnosing them, what they've done is they, rather than diagnosing them with a specific disorder, they're warning about the dangerousness that Trump represents because of his particular psychological characteristics in terms of impulsiveness and, and scapegoating, hate mongering and so forth. Yes, well, in many cases, um, the, the media were always saw fit to diagnose public figures along these lines, but uh, that, that, that's been ongoing in any event. And also, there's been a lot written about psychopaths in recent years. It's been one of the sort of, can I even use the word, sort of trending subjects. If you go and look at the number of online articles and books that have come out about it, and there's a lot, quite a lot of misunderstanding about that. It sounds like quite an extreme mental disorder, and it certainly can be, but it's got to the point now where some people roll their eyes uh, when they hear the term because they think it's being bandied about in a slapdash fashion. And I think it is. People are saying so-and-so is a psycho, they're a psychopath, if they disagree with them or if they're exhibiting some kind of behaviour that deviates from the norm somewhat, then, oh, psychopath. So I think we can throw terms that these around too liberally and you do have to be careful if you're even if it's a in the private and it's just an opinion if you're if you're a qualified professional you're saying do you know on the evidence i have i'm concerned that so-and-so might have this disorder again that's different from just sort of blurting it out on twitter or whatever i think there's also another two levels to the argument as well and when i was writing the book yeah say looking into the these three disorders and characterizing what they are and so on there was People that I would have been talking to at the time, sort of historians, for example, or psychologists who would have been saying, but that, what you like, if you like the big man history, um, theory of history where one individual can have such a massive impact has been discredited. Huh? So what I'm right, what I've read, written in the book is I found this idea of what's called the toxic triangle, a political scientist, Betty Glad had written about what this tro- toxic triangle. And it's an explanation of how the individual psychopathology of a leader can become mass psychopathology. And that's extremely important. It isn't just that this one individual comes along and, and suddenly has a magical impact. There are three sides to this triangle that need to be in place in order for societies to, be, to begin to be undermined by psychopathy. 
And the other two sides of those, one is the leader. The second one is the, the, a critical mass of followers, so a mass following that agrees with the leader. And then the third and crucial side are the environmental conditions, the societal conditions that make a lot of people think that the solutions and the, the mood and the anger and the, the, the scapegoating of such a, a, a toxic leader actually make sense. So we can discuss that in more detail, but bear in mind, I think throwing out labeling individuals, as you say, has very limited value unless we look at it in terms of a much more sociological, if you like, a much more holistic understanding of what happened when this this happened in the past and also what's happening today. Yes, and organizations, be they political parties or companies or whatever it happens to be, they can take on the character or some characteristics of an individual leader with a, a mental disorder and beheading the snake in that case won't necessarily reform the character of the organization it may well be just exactly what's needed but under certain circumstances that may not happen absolutely so i think when we look at the issue of populism now and the the rise of particularly a lot of the leaders that are getting into power are right-wing populists who are scapegoating immigrants um and if we look at the conditions that are that are empowering those individuals, then we would look back at the, I guess we're looking at 30 or 40 years of, of neoliberal economic policy. We're looking at the financial crash where a lot of people, a lot of people lost out, but the people in charge of many of the institutions and the politicians who oversaw it all walked away scot-free. So there is, I mean, democracy has been failing and that's one of the 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 reasons that we are in this situation at the moment where lots of people are saying okay well you know these strong men are coming along and maybe they do have a better solution because a lot of people have screwed this up over the last 30 years well i think that considering leaders uh, of whatever sort of organization with you know possibly having some form of uh, mental disorder is really the elephant in the room in some ways because you know, whether it's the public or where it's media commentators, it's, and it's throughout my life as, as the 20th century and our industrial society has progressed and seems to be grinding to a halt. Keep asking sort of, why is this happening? What is wrong? You know, none of us want this, whatever, you know, we're commenting on whatever the situation or event is. We didn't want this outcome. Why has it happened? How is this happening? You know, what are our leaders doing? And it's taken someone like Donald Trump, I think, to come along for large numbers of people to actually begin to factor in mental health issues. I think people, if they have acknowledged it in the past, and it's been historical figures that we mentioned, like, you know, that Hitler and Stalin, whatever. But then somehow, once we got past the, the, you know, the mass global horror of the Second World War, and the wars after that were all smaller, you know, then things were on the up, things were improving, and they were in many ways. And then questions of leaders' fitness to govern, to lead, were put aside, certainly in terms of mental health anyway. I think the assumption was, look, if you get to be U.S. president, obviously you're seeing. I think that there's a couple of things I'd, I'd, I'd say from what you've just said, Craig. I guess the first one is you're saying no one wants this to happen. There are a minority who do want this to happen. There are a minority who are going to benefit very substantially from this. Um, so those in positions of power, and particularly, this is where the psychopathy comes in. If you have no conscience and you're not really worried about the consequences of what you're doing, as long as it benefits you, then, as I said, there are 5% of the population who are very happy to go along with this and, and make society disintegrate. A little bit about the, the three, the other two disorders. Uh, I guess with narcissistic personality disorder, you can think that someone with narcissistic personality disorder is psychologically incapable of seeing others as equals. 
So since the Enlightenment, we've been moving in this direction of gay rights and women's rights and, and so on, and much more rough equality in society, if you like. People with narcissistic personality disorder do not want that to happen. They're not psychologically capable of living in a world like that. They want a world that is that is absolutely unequal and they are on top. Similarly, with paranoid personality disorder, people with that disorder are psychologically incapable of seeing other people as anything other than a threat. So no amount of reassurance and so forth is going to reassure them that these that they aren't in danger. So as it what happens when these individuals and then their followers and then the society begins to become segregated in terms of psychopathology versus normal psychology, these individuals and these groups begin to turn society into what their own internal world looks like. They begin to turn the the world into a place where they are in charge, no one else counts. It was interesting, just with reading Vladimir Putin's interview with the Financial Times yesterday, where he said the idea, the liberal idea has run its course. Yeah, what's that? That is tantamount saying is you no longer have any rights, yeah? and that's the sort of world in terms of that a lot of leaders now, the direction that we are going, and certainly I think also the direction that Donald Trump is very happy in travelling towards, is a world which isn't the one that most of us want in terms of rough equality and living together with others as equals and seeing others as human beings rather than a threat to be annihilated. It reminds me on. Uh George Bush Jr. say, I think it was him who said that the US Constitution was just a piece of paper. I can't remember the exact context that was set in, but it would have been probably Homeland Security clamped down, something like that. When I said no one wants this to happen, what was actually behind my thought was that there are times when, and I've looked at this a lot, when the uh, elite sort of leader political or economic or business class almost seem like a different species. So when I said everybody, I meant kind of the rest of us who are, who are, who are not this. And it does, it does feel like a different branch of, of humanity in some ways. And again, there's two things happening here. Yeah. So under one of the ways to, to define personality disorder is to, to define it as a, a very rigid way of, of thinking and behaving and perceiving information, of, of processing information. But it's a very rigid and fixed way of doing that. Huh? For most of us, we are able to, we will be able to think in terms of being afraid for our lives and seeing others as a threat, thinking that we are better than another group and that we should have everything and they shouldn't and so forth. We are capable also of, of thinking that we should annihilate others if they're a threat to us. Huh? So the thinking of psychopaths and narcissists, people with these other two disorders, overlap with the thinking of normal, normal human thinking. Yeah. What differs though is that the rest of us have a much wider spectrum of thinking and feeling and, and processing information and so forth. So under reasonable circumstances, most, most of us are on the other side of the spectrum in terms of being more cooperative and sharing and, and so forth. Yeah? But if we go back to this toxic triangle again, then whenever the circumstances change to shift a lot of people over to the extreme part of the spectrum in terms of their thinking that these this minority with disorders have, that's when you get mass movements in support of this this craziness. Yeah? Um, so, uh, so yes, there's there's a fixed. As I said, there's two things going on. There's a there's a fixed minority who are always pushing society in the direction of violence and greed. And then there's a, a more flexible majority who are capable of, of living you know, in 
peace and harmony, but are also very capable of contributing to these uh, violent leaders' agendas. Well, because their positions of power allow them to punch above their weight, what we end up with is a perception as a very distorted view of human nature. And as you've alluded to there, we are not all equally capable of violence and greed. But when those that are society are taking their cues from, or sometimes their direct instructions, as it were, the direct influence, th- these sorts of behaviours can become normalised. And then, as you mentioned in this toxic triangle, it becomes a self-perpetuating situation, almost you know, like a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And the one thing that gives me hope, and when it, when it was the last chapter in the book, is hope is a fairly short one, but it is. And the thing that gives me, me hope is what I was learning when I was studying psychoanalysis about infant development. You know, that as very small infants, we we need love and laughter and hugging and uh, attention in order for our brains to grow. Yeah, our brains aren't developed when we are born. A lot of our, our brain mass develops after after birth, and it's absolutely crucial for brain growth and for the synapses connections within our brains and so forth. Things like laughter, you know, this is amazing. Yeah, but things like laughter, things like hugging set off chemical reactions within our brain that sets our brain growing. Yeah? And the absence of those doesn't lead to abnormal brain development, leads to abnormal sort of psychological development. So you could look at our blueprint for humans as a species, eh? and we are designed to thrive in, in conditions that nourish us and, and that you know, conditions of love and concern. Eh? But that's absolutely not what we have in a lot of the, the political and organisational sort of structures and, and environments that we're, we're forced to live in. No, and this brings us to the question then, uh, you know, are these people born or made? That's uh, nature versus nurture, and it seems to me that in, in all human beings it's a combination of the two. Absolutely. There does seem to be a, a difference between psychopaths on one hand. Psychop- psychopathy seems to be more, have a larger genetic component to it. Um, the other two, from my understanding, in terms of narcissistic personality disorder and paranoid personality disorder, are much more, the contribution from early infancy um, is much more uh, important. And I think that comes across, the psychoanalytic theories of those two disorders, to my mind, make perfect sense whenever you see individuals who suffer from them. So, if I could take just a moment to explain narcissistic personality disorder, uh, the psychoanalytic view of that is, as, as very small children, we you know, we don't have an ego yet. People say that narcissist people narcissistic personality disorder have a huge ego. That's actually a misnomer. They don't have an ego. An e- ego is a, a, our center. You know, it's somewhere where we have a grounding that we're able to draw upon our memories, draw upon the, our experiences, and make decisions from within that center. Yeah? So it has a confidence to it, but not an overconfidence. Eh? But before that develops in very early children, there's what's called uh, uh, nar- the narcissistic self. And that narcissistic self, if you think about very small children, you know, like a little girl who's dancing in front of her parents and look at me, you know, aren't I great? That's the narcissistic self. And it's absolutely necessary for all of us to go through that stage of development where we want to be the center of attention. We need that attention, as I say, because we're anatomically, we're psychologically, we're, we're wired to respond to that kind of attention in terms of our, our emotional and psychological growth. So that narcissistic self on the, is the, the start of our this looking for attention and 
But usually as we grow up, we grow out of that. You know, we, we begin to get internal sources that we're able to, to draw on rather than almost having to have someone external provide us with, with, you know, comfort or provide us with, with attention and so forth. Eh? So with narcissistic personality disorder, that, that part of, that part of the personality can, continues right into adulthood. So there's this constant desire. It's, it's more than desire, actually. It's a, it's a complete psychological need for constant affirmation, attention. Tell me I'm great. If you don't tell me I'm great, I'm going to blow up on, on you. The other half of the personality then, with most of us, as I say, we get grow into this ego, which is a center yeah, that we can be confident about. And for most of us, the other half of our personality is, is our superego which is in fact our conscience. So the superego will say, okay, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. But it's it's a reasonable superego. It's not very punishing in normal normal psychological development. In narcissistic personality disorder, it's there isn't a superego. There's what's called an ego ideal, which is as if the, the parent, whenever the small child was dancing and saying, look at me, aren't I wonderful? The parent was saying, no, you're absolutely rubbish. You're absolutely worthless, useless. Yeah. And that is internalized and becomes this ego ideal. So in a narcissist, someone with narcissistic personality disorder, they have their personality is completely split between this ego ideal that's constantly craving for attention and this um, uh, ego ideal, uh, which is telling them you are absolutely worthless. And that shows for, for you know, the idea of narcissistic rage where someone it doesn't get the attention or someone isn't praised the way that they want to be. That's this, this ego ideal breaking through and saying you're absolutely rubbish. And the person then has to protect against that through an outburst of rage against whoever it is around them that's, that's threatening their internal stability. I just want to recommend at this point uh, a couple of things to listeners that I've already covered with other guests. Uh, interviews they can find on the legalizefreedom.com. They just need to put some relevant terms into the search box. Uh, one is a couple of interviews I did with a guy called Nick Duffel. The interviews are uh, Wounded Leaders and the other one is Trauma, Abandonment and Privilege. These deal with the importance of upbringing to shaping individuals, specifically those that go on to positions of power. And he deals a lot with um, schooling and family environment, but it's very relevant to what we're saying. Uh, also, I have an ongoing series with Jason Horsley, which is not focused on, but touches on very often uh, the effect of upbringing on individuals. In terms of your book, I was reminded of these other interviews I'd done because I was thinking of this sort of bubble upbringing that many people in public life have, and it's not quote-unquote normal in, in that it's, it's very exceptional and not in, in good ways, not in, not in ways that you or I would consider balanced and healthy. You know, whether that's Someone having a, you know, absent parents because they're too busy. They've been put in boarding school. They've been looked after by nannies. They haven't had that attention. Whatever it happens to be, that's just one example. It's, I mentioned that because it's, it's, it's quite typical. I think this, this also brings us to my mind the difference between Brexit and what's happening in the UK as compared to what's happening in the US or what indeed what's happening in, in other places where sort of the democracy has been destroyed to, to an even greater extent. Eh? To my mind, I I can't see the British political class as being disordered in this way. Yeah, I can see them as being much more in terms of what Nick Duffel would talk about. Um, 
privileged upbringing and they see themselves as in, in many instances see themselves as being you know entitled to power and so forth eh? but that doesn't necessarily entail disorder yeah it just entails a, a particular view of looking at the world the difference i think between the two is in terms of the, their ability to 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 move out of that particular position to be another you know to to exhibit empathy and and, and so on um, so what I see happening in the States is much more, to my mind, much more dangerous and much more vicious. You know, if you think of the children being separated and put in concentration camps and the, the degree of hate-mongering that there is, yeah, the degree which American, you know, the Republican Party and then sections of American society are, you know, are okay with this, you know. I mean, the, I think... Um, in the Atlantic, one of the, the, the writers in the Atlantic was had an article called The Cruelty is the Point, you know. Um, so I think there's a cruelty to what's happening in the States that is indicative of this type of more severe disorder than what's happening in, in the UK. Um, I think what both of them share is that democracy has has, has failed. Yeah, that a lot of the the institutions of democracy, the way that we're, you know, the, the polarization of society away from democratic norms, and agreeing that, you know, arguing it out democratically is how we how we resolve our differences. Huh? Um, so I I see things quite differently. I I think Nick Duffel Duffel's analysis, to my mind, would be much more appropriate for what's happening in the UK. Yes, well, and it is indeed focused on the UK. I'm not, of course saying for a moment that everybody who went to public school and had a, a financially or materially privileged upbringing is somehow got going to have issues in later life. It's perhaps just that it would be good if democracy was a bit more representative. And that brings me to another point, actually, which is that, uh, in my experience of life anyway, people want to be led. That, and that is generalising, but most people, they want to be told how things are, what's happening, what they're going to be doing next, more or less. That's just my take on it, that most people don't seem to be the sort of, you know, 100% self-starters that they want to be in complete control of everything. And I think that's probably quite natural. I think in our history, you know, the leader of a group of hunter-gatherers might have emerged, whether uh, an overall leader all the time or whether a leader and particular different leaders for different situations, what's required, you know, who's the strongest, who's the smartest, who's the wisest, whatever. And you know, the group, it's quite natural for us to defer to those that we perceive as capable, I think. But, uh, you know, it's sort of like, over to you. You know a lot about this. Please, you know, you take the floor. You t- tell, you know, tell us how, what, what's best in this situation. Perfectly natural. But that means that people, I think, are probably too willing to hand over control, especially to people who are persuasive. Because one other side of some of these disordered minds that we're discussing is that these people can be very convincing, charming. Lots of people have spoken about meetings with figures, historical figures who turned out to be tyrants and monsters and said, well, you know, they could be incredibly, incredibly charming. Absolutely. That's that's one of the characteristics of psychopaths, eh? that they are charming. In terms of our defences, and you're right in terms of leadership, we're, I guess the mass societies that we're in necessitate you know, leadership and followers. Um, but I think what we're living through at the moment is, is a wake-up call for us about the importance of democracy. And I argue that in the book. Um, and I would see democracy as being sort of the outcome of a, a long historical process where those who went before us, sort of after the event of being the victim of, of 
um, these dangerous individuals and groups have put in place defences against them. So beginning back in ancient Greece with the, the basic idea of the you know, democratic vote that we'd have, we'll all have a sing, have a vote. Once we agree on it, then everyone has to go along with it, and you don't resort to violence if you if you lose the vote. From that very basic principle through the rule of law developed over centuries, then in the American Revolution, the idea of the, the separation of church and state, so that the state can't impose a particular ideology on individuals. Also, the idea of representative democracy, that we have elected leaders who represent a, a constituency. Um, through the, the Second World War, then, the, the idea of, of human rights, the protection of individuals in, in, in law, um, which came out actually of the, 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 the Holocaust, because the, you know, the Germans were saying that, that this was a, this was legal in Germany. The Holocaust was legal and it was their right. So the, the human rights legislation that came out that, that countries and governments can be bound by, by international human rights law because it isn't their right. Individuals have human rights that can't be taken away from them. And then finally, sovereignty, shared sovereignty between nations, that the nation isn't, you know, sovereign in terms of there are issues that need to be, um, mediated at a higher level. So that I argue in the book for that idea of democracy as being these layers that have been built up by our ancestors over time in response to hugely violent events um, and that they've bequeathed that, that to us and we have to waken up and see that is what democracy actually is. That's what's at stake. But the difficulty I think at the moment is democracy has two purposes. Huh? One of them is to keep us safe. The very basic one is to keep us safe so that those pillars that I just talked about in terms of rule of law and human rights and so forth keep us from having governments and our fellow citizens coming around and, and murdering us or, or locking us up just because they don't happen not to like our, our politics or, or whatever. So that's the first very basic fundamental function of democracy. The second one, of course, then, and I think we've taken the first that one for granted. In a lot of Western countries, the memory of the Second World War is fading, and we've taken that first function of democracy for granted, and to our cost now, I think. But the second function is the effective running of society, yeah? that we have effective services, that we are able to live in societies that are functioning. And again, as we mentioned earlier, in many respects, a lot of Western governments have failed on that second function of democracy. So, uh, I guess the answer to my mind is not this rush into populism and scapegoating that we're seeing. It's much more about taking stock and saying, OK, yeah, democracy is our only defence. Democracy is the way forward. Maybe we need additional pillars that strengthen that even further. But that's the direction of travel we need to be going in. Briefly harking back to something that you mentioned a moment ago, you cite in the book, I think it was Adolf Eichmann, but one was senior figure in the Nazi regime when he was being tried, probably at Nuremberg at the end of the war, Second World War, and, and he was saying something along the lines of, Germany is, you know, was sovereign. This was, it was our right to do this. It's none of your business. You should have just stayed out of it. We had the right to do this. And he was, I'm sure he was convinced of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of them were also convinced, absolutely convinced that what they were doing was right, if you like. In the, um, Hitler himself famously, Hitler totally thought that what, that the annihilation of the Jews was for the benefit of mankind. This is going back to why 
it's so important to understand that this is a psychological disorder. This isn't just normal human thinking. Yeah? So Hitler, during, during the Second World War, Hitler had two major um, objectives when he started the war with Poland. The first was to take over the Poland and the what, Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, and turn that into living space for, for Germany annihilate everyone who lived there, the mass majority of people who lived there. And then the second was to annihilate the Jews and also other, other what he perceived as useless eaters was the phrase that he used. People like disabled or people who were, who in his view didn't deserve to live. Yeah. And when the, he thought then that of course that the, once they invaded Poland and invaded Russia, the war would be over fairly quickly. He would achieve the first goal, and then he could take his time and concentrate on annihilating the Jews and other useless eaters. When the Russians stopped the German advance, then Hitler had to make a choice, which of these two was he going to, to pursue? And he turned his attention then to the Holocaust, and that's when the Holocaust ramped up. And when a lot of the, the he got messages from some of the death factories in Poland, when they had done their job, because unlike Auschwitz, Auschwitz was still you know, operational when the the sorry, when the the Russians and the Allies sort of made their way there, but a, a lot of the other death camps had murdered, you know, countless people and then closed down, been covered over and done their job in adverted commas. And Hitler and many of the others that would have been working with him were satisfied with the job well done. Yeah. So th- it's this depth of depravity, it's this depth of inhumanity that, you know, that signals absolutely here you're dealing with psychopathy. You're not dealing with normal human being, human psychology. You're not dealing with a psychology that comes out of our blueprint of developing in terms of love and laughter and fun. And it's probably just worth mentioning what we've hinted at already, which is when we're talking about psychopaths in the Nazi regime, for example, and that extreme depravity and violence, psychopath does not equate with violent behavior. It's not like someone who's an uncontrollable violent urge, someone who might be schizophrenic, might virtually seem possessed, and that may result in violence to themselves or others, and they may have no conscious control over that. But most people who fall into category of, of psychopath in our society, there, there's no interest in violence whatsoever. That's not what it's about. It's just it, it might be something that interests them in a way that some other person with more normal mental development might end up resorting to violence for one reason or another. But you talk about successful psychopaths in the book, you know, people who move into areas where they can advance themselves and maybe these areas are well adapted or they can adapt themselves well to it might be if not politics maybe law or business just areas that they can operate under sort of hidden in plain sight as it were mm-hmm. what you were saying greg in terms of the psychopaths aren't necessarily violent some are and um, most of the research that's been done on psychopaths has been done robert Herr, who's a canadian psychiatrist had, he was the man who devised the psychopathic checklist that diagnose that's used for diagnosing psychopaths and one of the items or a few of the items on that checklist are about criminal and violent behavior and most of the research that's been done until recently has been on on prison populations so the vast majority of what we know about psychopaths we know about the violent psychopaths yeah um i can't remember the exact figure that robert Herr cites but he says something like 50 percent of violent crime in the u.s is committed by five percent of inmates 
Yeah. So they had an, an enormous, again, going back to the argument that although this is a minority, they have a, a, an influence, a malign influence, way out of proportion to their numbers. Um, so that that's one indication of it. Eh? But more recently then, you're right in terms of there's this other category, the so-called successful psychopath, that researchers more recently started looking at. And the difference, it, the difference could be as simple as impulse control. Yeah, that violent psychopaths have the same, like basically for both sets of psychopaths, they see others not as people, not they don't have conscience about how they treat other people. They'll do whatever they can in, for their own furtherment, regardless of the consequences for others. But one set may have better impulse control, and knowing that it's going to have consequences for them, they may be able to stop themselves from, at least in public, they may be able to stop themselves from from acting violently or or. Um, and that side of things then is is the so-called successful psychopath. And so there has been research now starting doing this in, in organizations, in financial organizations and so forth, where the number of, of individuals, trainee leaders and so on, who would have the characteristics of full-blown psychopathy is multiples of what it would be in the, in the normal population. And again, this goes back to our idea of the toxic triangle of the leader, the environment and the followers. If the environment is such that it rewards behaviour where you don't care about the consequences for others, that your own individual reward is going to be paramount and you'll be helped by the organisation to forget about the consequences for others, then it'll be no surprise that this is exactly where these people are going to to concentrate. Um, a few days ago on the Legalized Freedom Facebook page, I shared an article by another guest of mine, psychologist called Steve Taylor, and he was discussing indigenous societies and psychopaths and others with mental imbalance. That's a danger to the tribe, as it were. Have you done any work in that area? Have you got any theories? It seems that a lot of what we're discussing is a function of large concentrated societies, you know, people living in cities, sometimes millions of people, and everything that comes with that, everything that in society that's developed over the last few thousand years towards what we now regard as, you know, the sort of the apex of civilization is an enabling of some of this stuff. If there were just a hundred humans on the earth and five of them were psychopaths, things probably wouldn't pan out in the same way. You know, in some indigenous societies, people who posed a threat, a redirect physical threat to the tribe would be sort of quietly disposed of. I think it it is a, a consequence of, of size, societal size on one hand. I also think, however, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about thinking that things were, were much better, you know, in hunter-gatherer and, and it, it may be, uh, but the reason that I'm, I'm skeptical is because we are also, you know, for the normal majority, we are also very susceptible to regression in times of yeah, of hunger in times of, of severe need and severe want, yeah, in terms of our physical needs and so on. And so there would have been a lot of, you know, until, I guess, until the Industrial Revolution, when we really began our climb out of po- extreme poverty and, and towards, you know, lives that were, were longer than 30 or 40 years. And, yeah, so I'm, to be honest, I'm a big fan of, of, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that side of capitalism, you know, where, where we get, where it has allowed enormous human development. Yeah? I think we could have to do a much better job about redistribution of the fruits of that. But I'm with Stephen Pinker in this in terms of th- that there has been enormous progress that we have been able to develop as, 
as individuals within a species and as a species enormously because of the, the, the fruits of technology and the fruits of development. Um, so I think with that comes the danger of within mass societies that these individuals are going to be hungry for power, they're going to be charismatic, they're going to be able to convince, and societies are going to go through, going to go through periodic periods of very bad times whenever lots of people are going to be angry and looking for scapegoats and will agree with this minority that is always there dormant waiting for their time. Um, so I'm a little, to be honest, I, I don't know, you know the evidence, but I know from the reading that I've done, readings I've done on history, for example, were right back to the very earliest cave paintings and so on. There were depictions of priests, you know, or, or you know, which suggests that you know, hierarchy and power were there from extremely early in 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 our our settlement in our as a, you know in our history as a species, um, and you know the misuse of religion in terms of power. You know, I think has a, has a history stretching all the way back. So unless we're talking about very small groups, and there is evidence, as you say, about how very small groups are able to, to sideline, you know, very troublesome individuals. But, but I think this has been a feature. This minority have been a feature of our history, for worse, for as long as we've been around. Well, perhaps in our final section here, we'll turn to a little bit more of kind of where we are now, the role that the current climate plays in a society as you say is very important part of that toxic triangle it can be and it feels now we've got so much division and polarization and you know hysteria people getting things out of proportions there's scapegoating left right and center we hear a lot about fake news the me- the media can be very puerile very lurid sometimes and that further fuels things and we have this in culture wherever it comes from of entitlement and victimhood and all of this infects not just politics but every aspect of life uh, we have it in economics we have it in religion it certainly feels has done for some time quite feverish like this is being ramped up and for those of us trying to take an objective look at the situation it can be tricky to see well, how do we put a break on this or how do we even take t- a bit of a time out here you know it's sort of like it's sort of like something that's running away with itself you know, like a runaway train there was a quote i came came across about you know things are getting better and better and worse and worse faster and faster yeah. so we're like on there's two things we're going in two directions at the same time yeah two opposite directions at the same time so for everything that you see in terms of Trump and the populist movements and, and so on, you can also see a lot of very positives in terms of the you know, how the climate action movement now is really accelerating um, in how the, the, the Me Too movement and, and so on. There's lots of positives that are also happening at the same time. I think our challenge is to make sense of it, uh, to make sense of it in a way then that we can have uh, an approach to it that that solves the problems. Um, I think part again parts of that are beginning to happen, but there's we've got into this situation really from at least thirty or forty years of going in the wrong direction in many ways. Yeah? So, to my own mind, I think we need to begin. You've mentioned some of them, but we need to take this idea of toxic triangle and begin with the institutions, the institutions of economics, for example. Things like the profit motive for a firm as being the overriding uh, sort of focus. Things like the countries looking at GDP growth 
rather than broader issues of well-being, you know, concentration of power of corporations. I could go on. There's a list of things, and, and these issues are being surfaced. They are now being talked about in a way that they wouldn't have been five five years ago, even. Um, certainly in the mainstream. Huh? Um, if you look at religion, similarly, yeah, there there are things about religion that you know one half of it is bringing us in a very positive direction, the other half of it is bringing us towards more discrimination and scapegoating and sectarianism and so forth. Huh? And similarly with politics, politics has been going in a in a way that is much more influenced by by money, by big interests. Yeah, so we need to. I think we need to look at each of these institutions, and if you like, future-proof them against this minority. Are the norms and values within these institutions giving rise to leaders who are emerging from them that are the right kind of leaders to lead us towards the kind of environment that the majority of human beings can live within and want to live within? Are they the right kind of leaders that are going to bring us to the solutions of the problems that we're facing in terms of climate change and the threat of nuclear war and, and so on? Eh? So there's no easy solution to this. Um, it's systemic. It's in within most of the institutions and society that that we are influenced by. But I I am hopeful because we are the majority and because I think this this idea that there are dangerous individuals and groups that are taking control and bringing us in the wrong direction. I think for the first time, maybe for the first time in history, yeah, because we didn't have this knowledge at the time, at the Second World War and so on. We didn't have as much knowledge about this as we do now. There wasn't the mass of, of pushback that there is as, as is happening now. So I'd be hopeful, you know, that there is, you know, Things are going getting better and better and worse and worse. It's for those of us who are making things, are trying to push things better, better and better, just to keep working and to try and stymie the other from happening. Bizarre twists in all of this is that uh, you could use Donald Trump as an example here if you wanted to. That, that kind of trust has been so undermined in a political class by the political class themselves, or many of them, that ironically... Trump was always cited to be not of the political class, but it makes someone coming along with solutions, particularly solutions that sound less painful, it makes them attractive almost to the point where it's like, I'm not really listening to what they're saying, but they say they can sort it out. And it's taking advantage of what is genuine, heartfelt desire for real change. And lots of people, lots of the change movements are expressing things that, you know, massive amounts of people genuinely feel. So that's real. It's just a question of who's popping up and saying, oh, over here, I've got the answer. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just scribbling here in terms of Eric Hoffer, the book, The True Believer. Have you come across that, Greg? No, I know his name, but I haven't yeah. read the book. He, his short book is exactly what you've just said, because he says that in every one of these mass movements where he talks about Hitler and so on, what is characteristic of them is a mass longing for change for a better future. But that the toxic leader comes along and says, I'm going to bring you to that better future. But in order to get there, there's all of these obstacles in terms of Jews or blacks or, or gays or whatever it is. And we have to, immigrants, we have to get rid of them in order to get to that better future. Yeah. So that's where they get their power. The desire for the better future and the fact that we do mean to need to make fundamental change in order to get there is absolutely real. What isn't real is how these toxic leaders then scapegoat completely irrelevant minorities in order to build their power base. Um, may I say just one more thing, Greg, in terms of, of a hopeful sign, which 
most people wouldn't see as hopeful at all. Huh? In terms of fake news and false news and this social media, the fact that we, we can't tell fact from fiction or truth from lies anymore, huh? I strangely see some hope in that. Huh? Because if you go back to Stalin's regime or Mao or so on, it all ran in propaganda. Yeah, You had to be a believer in the propaganda. Yeah, But now there is no propaganda. All there is is lies. Yeah, So one of the the quotes that I came across when I was uh, researching the book was that these tyrants of the past needed the propaganda because without it, all that would be left would be naked pathology. Yeah, Now all that's left is naked pathology. That's much easier to see through. So I think we're living a time where you know, there's enormous learning that we can get from what we're going through. And there's enormous numbers of people who want to learn from it and stop it from happening. So I suppose the message is don't just don't disengage and give up and assume that everything's going to hell in a, a handcart. <laughs> Absolutely. But also don't assume that everything's going to turn out all right so we can sit back. Yeah. So in terms of voting, in terms of, of lobbying, in terms of, of protesting, those are all absolutely essential things in terms of writing, in terms of speaking up. Those are all essential things to be doing now. Final couple of comments, Ian. This, this is one is beyond the scope of your book, and you may or may not have a view to express on this. But thinking about the environment and about... Uh, how the economy is structured and where we get our energy for that powers everything. I have very real concerns that the lifestyle, the Western industrialized lifestyle that we've become accustomed to and that the rest of the world wants and has been for some time spreading to various corners of the world, that isn't sustainable in the medium to long term. And transitioning through that is going to be very challenging. And I think that that is unfortunately going to potentially make room for some of the people that we've been talking about. I totally agree, totally agree. I think any time that there is these these major dislocations, major chaos, then that's the time when these individuals emerge. That's their moment when they can come forward. And as we're seeing with Trump at the moment, it's absolutely the wrong direction they bring us in, denying climate change and you know, giving more power to coal and so forth and denying that any of this is happening. Um, there are people who think that he should be, you know, this is tantamount to crime against humanity in terms of climate change denial and bringing the world in the, in the wrong direction, particularly given how short a period we have in order to resolve the issue. I, this brings us back again to, I don't, there maybe there hasn't been a moment in human history where the recognition of this minority is so important the recognition of the da damage that they do and the direction that they bring us is being completely misplaced because we have such a short time period and the recognition that we need leadership that is the, the exact opposite of what these people are offering. You know, leadership that brings people together, leadership that allows people to resolve differences non-violently, that allows people to cooperate and share. You know, that's absolutely where we need to be going if we're going to resolve those those problems that you mentioned, environmental problems and so on. Okay, final point. Whether there's a genetic component to some of these disorders, the three we've been talking about or not, whether it's a lot to do with upbringing, in some of the cases we've discussed, it's almost like people who have empathy would want to show empathy towards these individuals because they're afflicted. And is there a way that we can help them? But can these any of these cases be treated? What do we, what do, we do with psychopaths? What, how, do we, how do we handle it? How have we handled it? We've seen some of the ways we've mishandled it. 
In the book, I say I'm, I'm cautious about this eh? because at the moment, all the research suggests that these these disorders aren't treatable. Narcissistic personality disorder may be treatable, but over a very long period of time, you're, you're talking about years of, of three to five days a week in therapy. Um, so, and of course, if you're you know, if you've got a power structure where you're allowed to run a country or a corporation, or you're making you know huge amounts of money from you know doing your job and not worrying about the consequences for other people, you're not likely to go into therapy. Um, so, for all intents and purposes, at the moment, these are incurable. But in in the book, I've I've written that we should be cautious with that because not too long ago we thought other psychological disorders were untreatable and treatments were developed. So we're kind of in an emergency situation at the moment. I don't, what I advocate, and I've been very clear about this in the book and thinking this through, the last thing we need is a sort of a pogrom against people who have dangerous personality disorders. One is unethical, but two, it also, such a thing would absolutely hand power to the people who have them. You know, they'd be the ones running the campaign. The best thing to do, there's this phrase that I came across about spinning down the centrifuge. I think we would know about this. I mentioned this in terms of the context of Northern Ireland, the violence in Northern Ireland. As long as the violence is happening, the centrifuge is running fast, and the most reasonable people are going to be thrown to the edges, whether it's in politics or whatever. They're not going to be the people who stay at the centre. The people who stay at the centre are going to be the most ruthless. So in order to deal with this, you need to to slow down the centrifuge. You need to slow down, reduce the divisions within society. So it's it's a... to my mind, it's about strengthening democracy. It's about standing up for what we believe in. It's about understanding what I said earlier about this being an absolutely fundamental defence to, you know, to our own individual lives as well as our way of life. Um, so that has to be taken much more seriously. Huh? Um, but also, we should be much more, to my mind, we are not naming the problems. Yeah, on the news you get the you know the other side coming on and and saying their lies and saying this is being given on, in terms of equal balance. Yeah, um, so and freedom of speech is about being able to say something that's completely untrue and not be challenged. You know, those things have to be challenged. Yeah, um, there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as values that need to be stood up for, um, and so those things have to be stood up for. Well, Ian, today we've been discussing your recent book, uh, Disordered Minds, How Dangerous Personalities Are Destroying Democracy. That's been out for several months, came out last year, in fact. That's widely available. So uh, just tell listeners about uh, perhaps your website or anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, my website is disorderedworld.com. Um, so, and I'm starting to think about the second book now. And that's, I'm, this is, it's around this issue of what we do, these, you know, the, the institution of economics and religion and politics and all and what how those things now need to be reformed this is an, to my mind this is an issue of historical importance you know it's not just about getting out of her in immediate emergency which is important but it's also about how how we shape our societies going forward the lessons that we learn from what's happening to us now wonderful William once again thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thanks very much Greg thank you for having me on <laughs>